Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. All right, everyone. We're going to go ahead and read God's Word, so please remain standing, finish up your conversations. We'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word. I know, it's great. Everyone's uh, communicating, sharing information. There's a lot of new people. I'm new here, too, uh, and it seems like every week I'm meeting someone new. Very transient community, very much like uh, where I'm from back in Colorado, so it's great to see everyone uh, getting to know each other. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, so this week we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 10 through 17, and I'll be reading that. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you remain united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that, there are quor- that there's quarreling among you. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. Well, I guess, and this is my version, I guess I did baptize also the house out of Stephanus. Beyond that, I'm not really sure whether I baptized anyone else. And then back to the original version. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thank you. We are in uh, week two of uh, our series in 1 Corinthians, and for those of you who are new, we're in week two of Icon Church, so uh, you can tell your grandkids that you were at the second week of Icon Church, uh, that's cool. Uh, uh, we have uh, entitled this series, The Gospel Formed Church, and uh, I, w- I want to kind of define that a little bit because uh, things like that can become you know, cliche or slogany and not be, uh, you know, super relevant. And so um, when I talk about gospel-formed church or a gospel-formed person, um, that's someone that takes every issue or every idea or every experience and looks at it through the lens of the gospel. Okay, so this is, uh, this is our, our hope for 1 Corinthians is that we would learn how to take all of the issues that Paul is going to address, and, and they are many. I, I said this last week, I want to say it again. We are not studying 1 Corinthians because the church in Corinth was a model that we want to follow. Uh, as you will see shortly, that is by no means the case. I mean, the, the church in Corinth was, uh, was jacked, uh, honestly, to just say it really clearly. What, the reason we're doing 1 Corinthians is because of the way Paul approaches all of the jackedness, right? So instead of coming to them, as we'll see here today, and, and berating them or bringing new law to them, um, he comes at them with the gospel and says, listen, um, in order to be shaped by and then live out the truth of the gospel um, in each of these individual areas, this is what it would look like. And so um, tonight we're talking about divisions or factions or disunity in the church. And this was a huge thing uh, in Corinth. In fact, we'll see in the first uh, two chapters that this is kind of all Paul is talking about is this idea of divisions. 
And so Paul's going to give us like a, kind of a framework for how to understand these things. And this framework is not only true uh, in the church, but because we believe that Christianity is the true story of the world, um, that this basic framework is true regardless of whether you're here tonight and you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. And I, I know that there are people here that are not Christians and I'm super thankful that you would be here. And so I, I hope what you will hear is not only um, a perspective, a kind of a Christian perspective on disunity. And, and honestly, this is an issue that we see all over our culture right now. Um, but that you would also see how this, regardless of where you are uh, in terms of your faith, uh, is, is, is pretty applicable. And, and, and I want to make one point before we get into the text. Paul's desire is neither homogeneity nor relativity, right? Like neither of those things embody the gospel in the ways Paul is, is going to outline. That he's, he's not trying to make everybody uh, be the same, think the same, do the same robotically, nor does he think that just uh, kind of a, uh, a free-for-all of disagreement and factions is the idea that he's going to try and build this, this kind of gospel-formed third way. And so that's what we're going to uh, look at this evening. So, starting in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, um, I, I want to say this. I want to say what Paul is not saying first, uh, and, then, and then we'll get into what he is saying. One of the things Paul's not saying is just agree. He's, he's not trying to force some kind of false, uh, homogeneous, uh, uh, kind of false peace on them where he just goes, listen, stop fighting and just, just agree with one another. Now, why do I know that that's not what Paul is saying? Why, why do I know that Paul is actually saying, I want you to wrestle together towards the truth. Don't just, just agree, but actually wrestle together, do the hard work of engaging one another and work towards the truth. How do I know this? Well, a couple things. One is, um, it, for Paul to simply say, I, I want you to just agree, it would beg the question, agree with what? As if it were so obviously clear and self-evident what all the answers were. Right now, I, I want to I pause on this because I think it's really important um, as we begin this new church and, and just about everything we say and everything we do is one of those like, okay, this is what we say and this is what we do. We're establishing so much. I want to establish this from the very beginning. The Bible is not altogether clear about everything. Amen? H have any of you ever read the Bible and been like, huh? Like what? Have you ever noticed that really good, godly Christian people across time and space have disagreed with each other about this stuff? Have you ever read the Bible and gone, uh, you know what, I grew up thinking this, and now I've had all this life experience, and I come to this same scripture, and I go, I don't know, I don't know if I still, I don't know if that's still true. I don't know if I still, I don't know if I still buy that. So for Paul to say, if he were to say, just agree, it would beg the question, agree with what? Agree with whom? The, the Bible is not just self-evidently clear in every way. In fact, there's a really good reason for this too, because it is not God's desire that we would primarily know all the things about him. 
Okay, this is something we talk about all the time, that God's desire is that we would know him, not that we would just know things about him. Right? I mean, yeah, Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the, the utmost of the Christian life is to love God. Well, to love God is to know God. To love God is to be in relationship with God. And each and every one of you who are in any relationship, raise your hand if you're in a relationship. Some of you have no relationships. Interesting. <laughs> so glad you're here. I think you can meet some friends. Um, tell me, um, it, it, is your relationship based on a list of facts that you know about that person? No. Right, I mean, the, the, your, your first date, you, you sit down and you ask all the questions, right? Or uh, the first time you sit down with a, you know, a, a friend that you're not dating, you sit down and you, you ask questions to that person, you learn all the important things, like where are you from and what are your parents like and what's your favorite color and you know, do you like Star Wars and you know, whatever all, the, all of your questions are, you get all this data, but, but at some point it transcends that and you always have this moment, um, especially in, in kind of a dating relationship, where someone says, well, what do you like about them? And this was my mom. My mom would always ask me, well, what do you like about her? And, and I would know that, um, in fact, this was the difference between my wife and any of the other girl I dated, was I, I, I was not, there was a difference where I would, I, I, my answer was, I don't know. I just like her. Right, because it wasn't the product of like, well, there's these five things that check off this box that, that, that make me go, oh no, this is the one I should date because she's this, 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 and this. No, it was just like, I just, I just knew her and I liked her and I wanted to be with her. I loved her. I, I love her, present tense as well, but at the time... <laughs> So, so if, if, if God's primary desire for us was just to know all the th right things about him, he would have just given us a very plain list of the things about him, but he didn't. He gives us this long overarching story that, that reflects his character and his will, and he invites us into it to be a part of it, to know him, not just things about him. Now, can you love somebody without knowing anything about them? Of course not. Of course not. So, so it's not to say we don't care about facts, we don't care about truth, that's absolutely not it. But Paul is, is, is calling the Corinthians and, and by extension calling us to, move, to kind of wrestle together towards knowing God and God's will for all of the various things in our lives. So that's one. The second reason I know this is because all of the things that Paul says to agree that there not be divisions, that, that there would be united, the same mind and judgment, all of these things are outcomes not processes. They're ends, not means. And everybody knows that, um, that all of those things take work, all of those things take time, all of those things take a process. You don't come to agreement by choosing that, you come to agreement through a process of learning together and growing together. So this idea of unity that Paul lays out for us is, is kind of his goal for the people in Corinth. And, and I would argue it is one of the kind of common denominators of humanity, that all of us desire to be a part of a people. We desire to be known and to know. We desire to be part of a community and so when, when Paul calls us to unity, there is something, I think, in all of us that goes, yeah, I, I want that. 
Right? Like, I've, I don't know that I've ever actually experienced that fully, but I want it. Okay? So this is Paul's appeal to us. Now, it gets more complicated. Verse 11 He says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Now, let me stop there just for a second because um, for those of you who are new, you'll learn how I like to read the Bible. And sometimes I read things like that and laugh because Chloe's got people, right? Like, who is this Chloe and who are her people, right? This is like a, she's she's like a mobster. This is like Chloe's people told me, you know. I don't do accents. I do accents. I just do them poorly. So, Chloe's people. Chloe's people tell Paul that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, right? So um, here here are these, these divisions, these factions that are happening inside the church. And now, what's important to know about this is that these are deeply cultural divisions. And we, we know this by the names uh, that Paul calls out, right? So um, Paul is a Roman citizen, and it, it's a Roman name. Apollos was Greek. This is a very Greek name. And there were Greek Christians in this church, as were, there were Roman Christians. And then the reason why we know that he's, what he's trying to do culturally here is that he calls Peter Cephas. Okay, so Cephas is the Jewish version of Peter, and he calls that out specifically. And so he's going, I'm I'm talking to you Romans, and I'm talking to you Greeks, and I'm talking to you Jews, and and I see what's happening here. Okay, so probably what's happening is as these different speakers and preachers and leaders have come through Corinth, different groups have kind of clung on to them. So it's, it's not necessarily racist, though that could be a part of it, but it is definitely cultural. And so there's cultural preferences that are playing into this thing. The Romans are more drawn to Paul and his Roman citizenship and all of the power that that conveys. Uh, the Greek Christians are drawn to Apollos and his, probably his wisdom and his oratory skills and the way in which he communicates, which was probably very Greek, kind of classically Greek. And the Jewish Christians, who have been for their whole being a persecuted minority, have seen a a Jewish leader who is the rock, the head of the church, and they are drawn to him. And so you see these kind of cultural factions start to take place. Now, are preferences wrong? Are cultural preferences wrong? Is it wrong for the Romans to prefer Paul, for the Greeks to prefer Apollos, for the Jews to prefer, prefer Peter? No. Not necessarily, right? This is why, why God made us different. If God expected us all to like the same things and be drawn to the same things and have an affinity for the same things, he would have made us all the same, but, but he didn't, right? Like, it's my hope that you have a preference for my preaching, right? Like, I hope that, or at least can put up with it, you know? Like, I hope you're the kind of person who's wired to hear the kinds of things, the kinds of ways that I say. Preferences are a part of life. But it can go sideways, as it did in Corinth, and and in at least two ways. The first is this. When we don't differentiate between preferences, values, and convictions. See, here's what can happen sometimes, um, where our preferences, where I go, yeah, I, I, I prefer this idea, or I prefer this guy, or this girl, or this communicator, or this cultural thing. It, it, when those preferences become values, and those values become convictions, We begin to spiritualize our preferences and those convictions become criteria. We start to draw dividing lines. 
well, I, you know, this, this preference of mine has become a conviction, and so now since it's a conviction, I, I have to draw some lines because you have a different conviction than I do, and so that becomes criteria. Criteria becomes division or exclusion, and division, when added with power, power structures can quickly become persecution, right? And so possibly you've seen this before in your church life where some powerful person in the church had a preference that became a value, that became a conviction, that became a dividing line, that became a divided church. This is where preferences can go really sideways. And it seems as if the seeds of this are starting to play out in Corinth. Okay, but there's a second way that these preferences can go sideways, and it's this. Um, it's how we choose our preferences. Right, so some of that is, is kind of subconscious and we're kind of asking ourselves a series of subconscious kind of or unconscious, unconscious kind of questions. And we're, often we're not really aware of it, but the questions that we're asking that, that decide our preferences really matter, right? So we might ask questions like, are they like me? Okay, so um, they're in, in church planting world. Um, we are told that when visitors come to visit your church, they're asking three questions. Are they like me? Do they like me? And do I want to be like them? Are they like me? Do they like me? And do I want to be like them? And I don't know if that's 100% true. We're not going to take a show of hands. But um, I think that's probably safe to say. So we ask ourselves these questions. Are they like me? Do they agree with me? How do they make me feel? How do they make me look? Who else likes them? Who else follows them? What can they do for me? What can they get me? Right, I mean, the, and the, the questions can get kind of worse and worse and worse as we go, and all of this happens very quickly and very kind of subconsciously, but the questions that we're asking dictate the preferences that we kind of arrive at, and then what we do with those preferences. Right, so in, in Corinth at this time, there was this system of uh, patronage that was uh, deeply embedded into the culture of the day. And the, the basic idea of, this, of patronage was that um, the kind of common people in Corinth would identify with a, uh, a famous person, a, uh, a political leader, someone who was wealthy and powerful, and they would pay them honor, sometimes simply by um, kind of showing up and aligning themselves with a, a particular origin or by paying kind of dues um, to particular par political leaders, but they would align themselves with certain powerful, typically men in this culture, um, and, and kind of reap the benefits of that relationship. And so they would, this is kind of what's happening here, that they're essentially saying, I'm with Peter, and if you know anything about the church, Peter was the head of the church in Jerusalem, which is the mother church. Right, so saying I'm with Peter may be a cultural preference, but it may also be a way to go, yeah, I'm, I'm with the guy who's the head of the big church. Right, and so Apollos was known to be a, a, kind of the best preacher in the, in the early church. And so they may, in fact, be saying, yes, I have a cultural preference for the way that Apollos preaches, but they may also be saying, like, oh, yeah, that Apollos, the guy who's the, the super preacher of early Christianity, yeah, he's my boy. Right, like I'm, I'm aligned with him and, I, and, and we're kind of deriving some value or prestige from him. 
Right? And this is, this is not an ancient concept, right? Or it's not just an ancient concept. We do this exact same thing still today. We align ourselves with certain kind of markers or ways to kind of build an identity off of some other thing. And so we wear our college sweatshirts. Or if we went to a good college, I don't wear a good college. I don't have a good college sweatshirt. I would never wear mine. Uh, we, we might wear uh, uh, T-shirts with team logos on them, or we may wear our work swag, or we might wear the logo of the place we used to work and wish we still did, or, you know, we, we wear band T-shirts. We, like, there are things that we put on. There's things that we take on. There's things, uh, and, and I'll, I'll, ad- I'll admit to one myself, almost any time somebody asks me where I went to seminary, um, the answer is Phoenix Seminary, and nobody knows anything about Phoenix Seminary because there is nothing really worth knowing about Phoenix Seminary except for one thing. My theology professor was, is a world-renowned theology professor and wrote the book on systematic theology. And I am amazing, I'll just admit this, I'm amazing at finding a way to sneak his name into those conversations every time. And I usually do it in kind of a self-deprecating way, like, oh yeah, there's nothing to know about Phoenix Seminary, except that, you know, this guy uh, works there and he was my mentor or whatever. It's hard to remember. Oh, I I have this great story about him this one time we were at his house for dinner. I've literally done that probably a hundred times. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I, I'm, I'm, it seems like I'm trying to be deferential. It seems like I'm trying to kind of talk about how great this other person is. But I mean, in actuality, I'm trying to align myself with them so that whoever I'm talking to might go, oh, wow, you studied under him? Yeah, that's exactly what I want you to think. It was the only reason I paid that money to go to that place. I earned that. So there's definitely kind of a patronage idea going on here in this passage. This is what's going on in the Corinthian church. Now, you'll notice that the very last one was, I follow Christ, right? Now, there's, this could be a couple different things. This could be a faction of the church going like, no, I, I reject, the, I'm not following Apollos or Paul or Cephas. We're with Christ, and that may be very admirable. It, it may just be kind of the super churchy people who are Jesus juking everybody and going, well, I'm with Jesus or that kind of thing. Uh, or it could be a way of making Jesus into a patron the same way you do Peter and, and Paul and Apollos. Because we can do that, Right? There's a way in which we can interact with Jesus, talk about Jesus, um, which is really kind of about us. In the end, we're, we're kind of using Jesus in certain ways. Right, so how does this happen? Well, when being a Christian helps us culturally, it's not really a thing in Seattle, but in a world, when Jesus is kind of our personal vending machine and we use him um, to get things from him. This is essentially a, a patronage relationship where I will align myself with Jesus insofar as he provides me with the job or the spouse or the future that I want. It, it's a, a version of patronage when we align with Jesus insofar as he supports our cause our social cause, our political cause, whatever it may be. And so you, you get make America great again Jesus or social justice Jesus or family values Jesus or personal fulfillment Jesus. 
this kind of version of him where you distill all that is about Jesus down to the parts that support the thing you really care about. And so you're with Jesus insofar as Jesus is on board with what you're on board with. Which is just, you're just using him. This is, this is patronage. So we can, we can see that there's a, a, a way in which these people are kind of aligning culturally, but there's also a way in which they're really using these, uh, these kind of icons uh, of these cultural preferences to reflect back on them. Okay, so if this is not how we're supposed to do it, how, how should we? What questions should we be asking? Who should we be following? Verse 13. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Paul says two things here. One, is Christ divided? And the the answer is absolutely not. And so the, the unity of the Trinity, unity of God himself is to be an example for us. So see in John 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says to the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So God, the unity of God, the unity of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is to be an example for us, that they are uniquely different persons and yet completely united together. Paul says, is Christ divided? And then secondly, and perhaps more importantly for us, he says, what did Paul do for you? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul or Apollos or Cephas? And Paul focuses on himself to be a good leader here, starts with those who would kind of uh, align themselves with his name. And he goes, what did I, what did I do for you ultimately? He says, did I do anything of real ultimate value for you? See, the Corinthians here were exchanging man for God. They were exchanging the earthly for the divine, the temporal for the supernatural. They were aligning themselves with men instead of continuing to align themselves under God. And in the absence of God or in in the case of the Corinthians, a fractured relationship with God, we don't cease to need meaning. We don't cease to need kind of that that existential, that, that deeper idea, that deeper truth. We don't cease to need that, but we begin to look horizontally for what we can only find vertically, for what God designed to only be found vertically. And so the Corinthian church, and as we'll see, I think, I think us too, times, in our kind of deep desire for meaning and identity and value and all of these things that, were, that are kind of baked into us, needs we really have, that they began to look horizontally to other people, to these icons, to Peter, to Paul, to Apollos, to provide them the kind of security and power, the position, the status that they longed for. 
we, we do this all the time. Perhaps we don't have a name that we could call out that are kind of cultural preferences like the Corinthians, but we often look to uh, things to give us that sense of meaning when we get in fractured relationship with God vertically. Sometimes we look to sports, politics, nationality, group, racial identity, social cause, environmental cause, sexual identity, success, power, money, fame, parenting strategy, schooling philosophy, your spouse, your hobby, nature, whatever, to fill in this gap of meaning. And, and I, I think this is what's happening in our world kind of at the largest scale right now. That is, Christianity, uh, it, it, it appears by all the kind of statistical markers, becomes less and less obviously Christian. The, the, uh, the, the shift has not actually accomplished what many scientists and philosophers thought would happen, which was as the country modernized, we would have a reduced need for the supernatural, a reduced need for the meaningful. That hasn't happened at all. What's happened is in the absence of this vertical relationship, we have just sought meaning in the horizontal. And so we have infused importance into the things that are around us. And this, this can be deadly. Um, there's a, a writer, thinker named Andrew Sullivan who is just a paradox of a person. He is a gay, Catholic, British conservative. He's actually my favorite gay, Catholic, British conservative, but um, he, he, he said this recently and I, I think it's spot on. He says, so what happens when the religious rampart of the entire system, cultural system, is removed? I think what happens is illiberal politics. The need for meaning hasn't gone away, but without Christianity, this yearning looks to politics for satisfaction. And religious impulses, once anchored in and tamed by Christianity, find expression in various political cults. Like almost all new cults, they demand a total and immediate commitment to save the world. Now look at our politics. We have the cult of Trump on the right, a demigod who among his worshipers can do no wrong. And we have the cult of social justice on the left, a religion whose followers show the same zeal as any born-again evangelical. They are filling the void that Christianity once owned without any of the wisdom and culture and restraint that Christianity once provided. I think that's spot on that when this relationship becomes fractured culturally or non-existent culturally, we can't talk about God anymore. We, we don't have any less need for depth of meaning and existential reality. We, we don't have less need for that. So it just gets redistributed horizontally into the things that are around us. So this process happens slowly and somewhat imperceptibly. We infuse, we begin by infusing earthly things with supernatural or divine or kind of ultimate importance. Now notice I didn't say meaning because we can't uh, uh, kind of falsely give something meaning that it doesn't have, but we can give it the importance as if it had that actual meaning. So once we do that, once those things have ultimate importance, they move to the center of our identity. They define us. 
those things that should be on the periphery enjoyed, like sports and politics and people and hobbies and all of these things that should exist on the periphery that are good things. Once they move to the, begin- the middle and become that ultimate thing, they begin to define us. And then once something define us, defines us, our whole framework of self depends upon the truthfulness of that thing. It has to be true. It has to be important. It has to be divine. Because if it isn't, our identity crumbles. So then we become religious about it. We neglect the facts for faith. And like any God, it asks us to love it, to trust it, and to obey. And then we begin to divide the world by those who agree and thus affirm our identity and those who disagree and thus do not affirm us. And as a result, we lose the ability to have sane and civil conversations. Because if I have a sane and civil conversation, I could be proven wrong, and then if I'm proven wrong, my whole thing falls apart and I don't exist as far as I know it. So this is what happens when the importance and value that should be uh, uh, simply vertical and only on God himself begins to move itself down to the horizontal as everything begins to break down. We break down into these factions and divisions. C.S. Lewis spoke to this in Screwtape Letters. Um, Screwtape Letters is uh, letters from a, a senior demon to a junior demon. It's, it's fine, just go with it. Um, he, and, and he's giving him advice on how to turn this uh, Christian man uh, against Christianity. He says this, he says, whichever he adopts, either patriotism or pacifism, Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or pacifism as a part of his religion. It's a value. Not a conviction yet, but a value. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part of that religion. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause. When we begin to divide. In which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. See that shift? From this idea is a part of my faith to it's the most important part of my faith, to I I begin to divide down the lines of who agrees with this, to then my faith becomes valuable insofar as it proves the idea. That's a very slow process, but one at the end results in division and faction and fighting and an inability for us to have sane conversation, for us to be able to struggle together towards the truth as Paul called us to in verse 10. Now, there's something worse than all of this, in my opinion. There's something worse than taking a a, a secondary thing and making an ultimate thing, and it's this, and I'll just spend a second on this. It's when we just get to a place where we don't care about anything, where we've allowed... Netflix and apps and all all of the distractions and beeps and dings of the world to make us not able or willing to think about meaningful things. 
Because see, at least if you've taken some kind of social cause or identity and made it the middle and you're willing to fight about it, at least you're willing to fight about something. At least you're thinking about important things and ultimate things and you're, you're engaging emotionally in that. My fear is for many of us that we don't ever think that hard about things because there's so many ways to be distracted and so many incentives to think very shallowly about things that we actually don't give ourselves to some ultimate thing. Either way, either way, it results in the breakdown of relationships and in the breakdown certainly of our vertical relationships, but then the horizontal ones. Now, what's the solve? Verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I love things like that in the Bible because you go, oh yeah, this guy is just is writing this stuff and he's carried along by the Spirit, but it's also Paul writing and he can't remember. It's just good. It's good for my soul because I can't remember things either. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says, I didn't come here to be your patron. I came here to preach to you a gospel that undoes patronage altogether. And, and for that matter, Jesus didn't come to be your patron either. He doesn't exist to bring you the status, the power, the security that you desire. He came to free you from those desires altogether. And this is the subtle but important difference. Jesus didn't come to meet all of your desires for status, power, and security, but he did come to meet your real, ultimate desires and needs for status, power, and security. This is a version of C.S. Lewis's mud pies in the slum argument. What we want is too little. We want horizontal status, horizontal power, and horizontal security. So we look to people to grant us status. We look to our position to grant us power, and we look to our wealth to grant us security. But these things can only offer paper-thin solutions to concrete problems. Jesus offers status by making you a forever member of his family. He offers power by indwelling you with the Holy Spirit. And he offers security by his unconditional love. And then, and only then can we answer Paul's call to unity. When we understand that Jesus matters most, that any other thing that has gotten to the center of identity, our identity cannot withstand the pressure. It cannot withstand the ask of being a God. It does not deserve to be loved like a God, trusted like a God, or obeyed like a God. It cannot handle it. And I think we know that because I think those things have failed to do those things for us over and over and over again. If we could pay attention to our experience, that every single time we've tried to put a person, an idea, or a position, or a job, or a thing, whatever it is, in that position of being loved like a God, trusted like a God, and obeyed like a God, it has failed us miraculously. I mean, spectacularly. 
So if we can remember that Jesus is, is what matters most, then, then we can be wrong and it'll be okay. We have to be able to be wrong and be okay. I have to be able to be wrong and be okay. And if we're all pursuing Christ's perspective on whatever issue that we're arguing about, this really amazing, things ha- this amazing thing happens, that when we are wrestling together towards Christ's uh, answer to whatever problem, whatever question that we're trying to answer, whatever cultural issue, whatever political issue, whatever thing we are trying to wrestle with, if everybody in the room is wrestling towards Christ's perspective on it, we're all moving towards each other as well. This is what it means to wrestle towards unity, to wrestle towards agreement, is to do the hard work of asking, what, is, what does God think about this? He made this world, designed this world, put it in all into motion, and governs it daily. What does it mean? What does he think about this? And as we all wrestle towards that together, we all grow nearer to each other. And as we learn together, we will also all submit to the will of God together, even if God disagrees with us. I know that sounds crazy, that God would ever disagree with us. But if we want to honestly wrestle together towards the truth, we have to start with the presupposition that that there is that truth. There is that objective reality. And and, and our, our call, our struggle is to work together, to fight together towards what that true thing is. Asking ourselves over and over, God, what what is what, what is it? What, what is true? What, what do you have for us? What, how have you made this world to be? And if we wrestle together and ask those questions that are formed by the gospel to look at every issue through the lens of the gospel and we're committed to doing so together and willing to be wrong and have the other person be right ultimately as we wrestle together that we can come together and, and discover what it is that God has for us. Now, for those of you here and you're not a Christian, you might be wondering what application this has for you because you go, I'm not wrestling towards Jesus. And I get that. Honestly, it's not that different for you if I'm, if I'm completely honest. See, I, I believe that, that Christianity is the true story of the world and, and that Christianity offers the, the best answers and the deepest wisdom to everybody and everything. So that if you're here and you're not a Christian, you just took Jesus' teachings and applied them to your life, that your life would get better. I believe that. But, but there are limits to that. That your life will improve if you shape it around his teachings but you can only improve your life so much by following his teachings. In order to save your life, in order to actually see transformation of your life, you have to know him. You have to follow him. You have to give your life to him. The the process has to begin with saying, you're God and I'm not, and I'm willing to figure out what you think. That we would enter humbly into that relationship that Christ has offered to us by the cross. And that that is really the only hope we have for the full satisfaction of life we desire. Paul's call, his uh, appeal to us to be unified could not come at a more important moment for our culture, for our church. 
This is a, a, a commitment that we want to have flowing out of last week where we talked about gospel clarity being a core practice of our church, that we want to be crystal clear about the gospel, that there, there's no beating around the bush, there's no sugarcoating, that this is the hope of the world. It's the hope of our hearts and our lives and it is the hope of our city, our neighborhood, and our world, the truth of the gospel. And so from, from the very beginning, I want us to be committed together that unity looks like us wrestling together to look at every issue, every moment, everything through the lens of the gospel and that we would turn it and look at it and figure it out together, but that we would all wrestle towards that. And I think what that can form, what that can shape here is a gospel-formed community that can be a light to this world and offer real, genuine hope. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are in your debt. We need you for our salvation. We need you for our day-to-day life. We need you for everything. There is no sense in which we are self-sufficient. So Lord, we come before you humbly tonight maybe a little afraid, knowing that there's something, there's some idea, there's something about our future, there's something about our present, there's something about our past, there's some cause, there's some identity, there's something about us that we, we, we honestly couldn't imagine relinquishing. We know that it is far too close to the center to bear the weight that it has born so far. We've already seen the cracks, we've seen the crumbles, we've seen it, we've seen that it cannot hold us up. Lord, I I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in such a way tonight that you would dislodge whatever those things are that are far too near the center of ourself, far too near the center of our identity. And you would take the seat that only you can sit in. Be the God for us that only you can be. And call us, each and every one of us, to you so that we all unite around you. May that be the hallmark of our church. That no matter the issue, no matter the problem, no matter the disagreement, we all come to the gospel to find the solution and submit to you our creator, our sustainer, and our king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as always, we'll transition to a time of response. We'll do this in a couple of different ways. Um, We'll take communion here in just a moment. Uh, Micah and Michelle will lead us in two more songs. Um, We'll give our offering, but before we do any of that, um, we wanna spend a couple of minutes in quiet reflection. There's a lot of things that are going on in our world, a lot of beeps and buzzes and distractions. And, and we, we want Icon to be a place where every single week you have a couple of minutes at least to be free from all that and to reflect deeply on what you've heard, reflect deeply on the implications and applications of the gospel. So we're gonna take a couple of minutes and do that and then I'll come back up and lead us in